Welcome to Zoe Science and Nutrition, where world-leading scientists explain how their research can improve your health. This plant has been used by human beings for thousands of years, with samples found in 5,000-year-old pottery discovered in the Upper Amazon. The Mayans considered it a gift from the gods and used it in their sacred ceremonies, where it was believed to have mystical healing powers. For the Aztecs, it was worth more than gold and given to their victorious warriors. Today, this plant fills shelves around the world. We gift it to our loved ones to express our feelings or help ourselves through hard times. I'm talking, of course, about chocolate. Even though our relationship with chocolate spans thousands of years, we still can't agree about it. It seems obvious that something so delicious must be bad for us. Can there be any truth to the claims that chocolate can improve our mood, our health, and even our libido? Well, today we look to the latest science to find out. I'm joined by Tim Spector, my scientific co-founder at Zoe, and one of the top 100 most cited scientists in the world, and Spencer Hyman, one of the world's leading chocolate experts and founder of the craft chocolate business, Cocoa Runners. Wonderful to have you both. So, just to kick off, I thought we'd try and do something uh, different, which we haven't done before, because there's a lot of myths and stories about chocolate. And so I thought we could try and uh, hit a whole bunch of them very fast with a lightning round of true or false answers. And if you'll just each answer to that, and we'll go around and, and kick this off. So first question, chocolate causes acne. True or false? False. False. I've never seen any studies for that. All right. So Tim and Spencer say no. So next one. Chocolate is high in caffeine. False. There is a small trace element. It's theobromine, which chocolate has in it. Yes, I agree. There you go. <laughs> so we already established Spencer's expertise in chocolate. That's good. Dark chocolate is healthier than milk chocolate. I'm going to sit on the fence on that one because it depends how you do your milk chocolate. There's something called dark milk chocolate, which actually has no added sugar to it. So you can actually have less added sugar to that than you can to some dark chocolates. So oh, fascinating. We will come back to this one for sure. Brilliant. And uh, next one, chocolate is bad for your heart. False. Definitely false, unless it's got lots of sugar in it, which is another issue. Yeah, correct. Yeah, depends on the type of chocolate, but uh, the good yeah. chocolates, it's not bad for your heart. We can talk about the Una a bit later, that great tribe of people who sort of have this extraordinary ability to drink like 17 cups of chocolate a day, eat fish and have amazingly healthy hearts as a consequence, which is where a lot of this stuff sort of comes from. But yeah. Chocolate causes headaches. False. There is a small study that shows that one of the things inside chocolate is something called PEA. And there is a tiny bit of evidence, well, there's a few studies which suggest that for people who can't break down PEA, that may be the case, but it's a real exception. There's, a, there's, there's only been like two or three studies done on it. it as a general rule of thumb, it, Tim is right again. Tim, possibly a personalized response in some people, or you just don't believe it? Well, there's always exceptions to rules. So I'm, I'm sure you never say never, but as a general rule, there is a general myth that chocolates cause migraine. And generally they do not. The studies have disproven that myth. doesn't mean anyone can't get a headache with any particular food or product, but I don't think there's any general risk of chocolate and migraine, for example, or really bad headaches. Got it. So there might be a whole bunch of other foods for other people that gives you a migraine. So the idea that chocolate in general is a problem. They've done placebo-controlled studies, and uh, there's no difference in those studies to provoke migraines and people who thought they were sensitive to it. So I think it's generally been disproven. 
Brilliant. Spencer, good for your business. Yeah, it is good. It's just literally anybody who can't break down PEA, will, but as you say, that will occur with lots of other foods, but it is specifically people who have a problem with PEA who do have a problem with chocolate because chocolate's got lots of PEA in it. Brilliant. Next question. You can eat as much dark chocolate as you want without worrying about it. I would say that's not true. You always worry about eating <laughs> unlimited amounts of anything because you need to have a balanced diet and uh, eat something else as well. So I mean, interesting, Spencer thinks you can live forever on just chocolate, but I think that'd be unlikely. You would be right that, that you need a bit of variety too. I mean, maybe one of the next questions is going to be, is chocolate addictive? And the sign for this is that it's almost impossible for people to actually eat enough chocolate for it to become addictive. So I don't think you can eat too much chocolate, but um, it, for it, for example, to become addictive. But you, you definitely, you would not want to just eat chocolate. That would not be a good idea. A little bit of chocolate has other advantages. Brilliant. And last question in this lightning round. Is it true that your gut bacteria like chocolate? Yes, I think they, they generally do like chocolate. If it's good quality, has lots of cocoa and not so many of the other ingredients. They, most of the average chocolates, I think they probably wouldn't like, but they are going to like high quality chocolate. It's full of great nutrients and polyphenols and other things which your gut will love. Um, but if it's mass produced chocolate, it's going to unfortunately be full of sugar, which is not necessarily the best thing for your gut. So, Tim, talk a bit more. I think we just started talking about something I think which is really interesting, right, which is to, you're already saying um, both of those sorts of different types of chocolate, which I think we'll come on to, but also like how it relates to the, these microbes in your, in your gut. Can you, can you talk a bit more about why certain chocolates might be good, what's going on with these gut microbes? Yeah, so you forget exactly what chocolate's made of, but it all comes from a plant that is fermented to give it great complexity. So it's a mixture of fiber and protein and lots of essential nutrients and these defense chemicals that are in the plant called polyphenols. And by fermenting it with microbes, when it's laid out in these hot tropical areas, this breaks down the plant into lots of chemicals and these protective chemicals, polyphenols, are retained in the chocolate. And so when you eat them are then liberated in your gut. And these are like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. And Tim, will you just remind everybody what fermentation is? Because you talked about that being a critical bit, and I'm sure that we'll have Spencer coming in a bit about this. Yeah, sure. The fermentation is a very general word that's used widely, but it means really a food that is broken down by microbes to produce other types of food or, or chemicals. And so this happens when you make cheese or making beer or wine or and it also happens within our own guts all the time. And so this is happening with chocolate, which is, I guess, less, you know, people think about that for cheese, but I think most of us don't think about that with chocolate. Indeed, yeah. Most people aren't really aware where chocolate comes from or how it's exactly it's made. I thought from the grocery store, I have to admit, that's probably it. <laughs> most people think it grows on trees, but it does actually. But yeah, so the process is very strange. And this very complex way of actually making chocolate by which it's dried and which you know we can discuss more about but microbes break it down and produce much more complexity than people think and so all the flavors are produced from these complex chemicals of the interaction between microbes in the forest or wherever the pods are left to ferment getting into the the cocoa and then that stays in that product in artisan chocolate at least and those polyphenols, these defense chemicals, 
which are the same ones you find in other healthy foods like nuts and seeds generally, are retained in the chocolate. And then when you eat it, they go all the way down to the lower intestine and they will then meet your gut microbes. And that interaction between the fiber that's still left in the chocolate, and there is fiber in there, plus these polyphenols make microbes happy. They interact with it to produce other chemicals, which we believe are generally good for your body, for your immune system, for your digestion, your mental health, et cetera, et cetera. So it's that complex interplay between the very complex chemistry of what actually is in chocolate, also the complex things that are going on in your own gut that create this healthy effect. If you've got a greater proportion of the healthy things in chocolate compared to the unhealthy parts of the mass manufactured processed chocolates. So it's getting that balance right, because on the other hand, if you go and get highly processed chocolates, mass-produced ones, they will add in all kinds of extra chemicals to bind it together, flavorings, sweeteners. And we know now that artificial sweeteners, so-called emulsifiers, which like a glue to keep things together, are bad for your gut microbes and will actually counteract any of the benefits that you might have been seeing. So it's all about not just thinking about chocolate as one thing, but realizing that it's a whole spectrum of different qualities that have different effects on your body, not only just the percentage of sugar, but also all the other ingredients that go into making lots of mass-produced chocolates. Whereas Spencer will tell you, you know, good chocolate has the least number of ingredients. So eating glue is bad. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I, I guess I hadn't really thought about chocolate potentially being glue. What's the line and how much of the chocolate that we might see in the grocery store is good chocolate, how much is bad? How do we actually figure that out? So I think the simple answer to that is that if you compare it to coffee, it's very easy in the case of coffee to tell the difference between instant coffee and a roasted bean. And you can get there's a different process going there. Similarly, if you look at a chicken nugget and you look at a roast chicken, most people can tell the difference. When you look at two bars of chocolate, it's actually a little bit harder. And you have to do it in a slightly different way. But to get to the answer to your question, which is, is most chocolate sold in supermarkets going to be good for you? Unfortunately, the answer is no, it's not going to be good for you because it's going to be mass processed. It will have been hydrolyzed in most cases. It will have been fermented because otherwise you can't get any of the flavor out of it, but it will have been not very well fermented. And then it will have been roasted in such a way, basically they take the shells off before they roast. And that means that it won't have any flavor because none of the pyrozones are able to develop. And consequently, you need to add lots of additives to it. And then above all, the way that most people sort of get you interested in chocolate, to use a euphemism, is they add lots of sugar, they add lots of fats, they add lots of additives, and they're trying to get you to scoff it rather than to savor it. So does that mean, Spencer, at the end of the day, like the amount of like real chocolate that's left in this thing is really small. It's a bit like other processed foods we might think about where it's been smashed to pieces. There's very little left that is the sort of thing that, that Tim is talking about. It's ultra processed. I mean, most chocolate is ultra processed. So what will happen, in fact, most chocolate is made, you know, the same way that a chicken nugget is made in the sense that the chocolate maker actually doesn't get the beans. He basically buys in something which has already been ready made and it will have been highly pulverized and, and processed. Um, and it will have at every step of the process, whether, you know, whether it be the fermentation, whether it be the drying, whether it be the roasting, whether it be the conching, it will be done for efficiency and scale, not for flavor, because what you're going to do is use additives later to create that. 
So as Tim said, the most important thing to do when you buy a bar of chocolate is actually look at the list of ingredients. And if it's got stuff which is not, you know, recognizable by your grandmother, um, even if it's something like vanilla, and if it's a dark chocolate bar, be skeptical because they're using that to actually cover up the fact that there isn't much flavor otherwise. How do we figure out a bit more what these differences in chocolate are at a high level? What's the difference between dark chocolate and milk chocolate? What do we actually see, you know, on the grocery store? You know, what's the reality out there? The first thing is that most of the chocolates on sale in uh, the US and the UK and English-speaking countries are milk chocolates. And what people often don't realize is how little cocoa bean is actually in those products. And best selling right in the in sort of Canada, the UK, uh, Australia is Cadbury's Dairy Milk, which has something around 23-24% cocoa content and was nearly made to be uh, refused status as a chocolate a few years ago by the European Union because it didn't uh, make standards because below 30%, I think, was what they were considering. You couldn't call it a chocolate. And something like Hershey's? Hershey's is around 12%, I think. It does vary with the different types, but it, it's even less than that. And uh, Spencer, just remind me about Bourneville. Do you want to tell them about Bourneville Plain, which was one of the first so-called dark chocolates brought to the English market? Spencer, tell us about Bourneville. Again, it's less than 40% cocoa. And that's mainly cocoa solids. Very little cocoa butter is added to it. So um, we can go back into what those ones are later. But yeah, I mean, technically, to be called chocolate in Europe, it needs to have at least 20% chocolate, whether it's a milk or a dark chocolate in the States, that's actually 10%. So that's where it sort of goes from. And most confectionery will have way less than 30 or 40% chocolate inside it. It'll be mainly sugar. It's amazing, really, right? So if if I bought milk, I'd be pretty disappointed if it was only 20% milk, or if I bought steak, it's like, oh, well, it's 30% steak. I would feel entirely cheated. But that is pretty shocking. Why is that? And at what point, what about the other end? You know, when we start to think about dark chocolate, when does it start to become classified as dark chocolate? And indeed, what's the difference between dark chocolate and milk chocolate? So taking that last question first, technically, the difference is that milk chocolate has milk in it. Slightly confusingly, a number of dark chocolates also have milk in it. You have to look at the ingredient list to check that because often dark chocolates will have a bulk or a filling agent like whey powder in it. So they're not suitable for vegans. But but in, in theory, dark chocolate should not have milk in it, but milk chocolate should have milk in it. So I think though that, that what you want to look for is the list of ingredients. And as Tim said, it should be less is more. But I think your questions as to why is there so much stuff added to chocolate is part of the problem that chocolate has, which is that on the one hand, chocolate is an amazing set of flavors in and of itself. It has more complexity of flavor and taste and texture than just about anything on the planet, including red wine. On the other hand, it's also an extraordinarily good vector for other flavors. In fact, arguably, it was the first bliss point food. So by bliss point, you know, you guys all know this because you're food experts, but the idea that, you know, if you combine sugar, salt and fat, we all suddenly become unable to resist it. Really, the first product to do that was in many ways milk chocolate with Nestle and Daniel Peter back in the 19th century. And that's what really made chocolate take off. Hence these like low fraction of chocolate yeah. um, in the in the bar, lots of milk, lots of sugar. It gives you this combination of some of the chocolate taste, but then sort of the sugar and the fat, which just triggers all of these things that make you want to eat more. Yeah. 
in a way which is you know very rarely found in nature is that what you're saying with the the bliss point yeah exactly um and chocolate is an extremely good vector for other flavors and tastes and sensations so that's what it's become used for not only is it the chocolate bar which is used in that way but chocolate is added to other products like ice cream or like cakes etc because it works so well at carrying other flavors and tastes so let's talk a little bit about the dark chocolate end right so i think a lot of people are like okay so i understand that probably hershey's or dairy milk might not be the thing i should be eating but you know, I like chocolate because, by the way, I really like chocolate. Tim, at what point does this dark chocolate start to be good for us? And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about personalized responses because this is one of the Zoe scores that we definitely look at carefully as we're figuring out uh, whether we can do this. Yeah, so there's no real consensus about, uh, you know, what level of cocoa it starts to be healthy, but it seems to have fallen into this general area above 70% is where most people seem to do that line. But I'm not sure there's much science about saying 65% is bad and 75% is good. But certainly the more you've got cocoa, it means generally the better, the more fiber and the more polyphenols, the more good stuff you've got in there. So in general, you want to be getting up towards that high percentage uh, if you can, particularly if you are having chocolate on a regular basis. And um, as we've all learned, you can train yourself very easily to move up from Cadbury's dairy milk to darker chocolates progressively, even if when you make that first switch, it seems quite hard. So everyone's aspiration should be to try and get their cocoa percentage up and work out where their own personal threshold is, because everyone will taste things differently. And so we'll have their own sort of personal bliss point, if you like. But I think that's what people should aim for. Obviously, there are some exceptions because if it's got nuts in it or other ingredients, it makes it quite hard to work out what the total cocoa content is. So Spencer might know how to advise people on whether once you add, start adding in nuts into it, for example, whether that invalidates all the, the percentage scores. Although I would say that adding nuts, I particularly do like nut chocolate. I know Spencer doesn't agree with me on that one. but um, Well, maybe it's good from a health perspective, but as a connoisseur, perhaps... That's a different perspective, right? The nut chocolate specifically is whether or not that gets in the way of appreciating some of the other nuances. The chocolate, but on the other hand, nuts and chocolate is an amazing combination because you get lots of texture from it. You, it is very healthy for you. And as well, different nuts can bring out different flavors. But I think, I mean, the, the main advice is that whenever you buy a bar of chocolate, if the first ingredient is not to do with cocoa, be very skeptical, whether it be a milk chocolate, whether it be a dark chocolate. And I think the second one, which is try and train yourself to savour rather than to scoff. Because uh, to my mind, the reason why I think, you know, we should get your perspective, Jonathan and Tim's on this. The reason why I think chocolate is a good thing to eat is that I think for most people after a meal, they actually want something sweet. There is this sort of wonderful idea of what the Japanese called satsubara or the second stomach. And what it seems to suggest is that even when we are quite full, we've had a whole meal, our bodies actually like having something a little bit sweet, like some chocolate, whether it be dark or milk, because it actually aids digestion. And you can actually see if you take an MRI of somebody after they've had a meal and they're saying that they're very full, if you show them some chocolate or a bit of chocolate cake, they will actually, you'll actually sort of see their stomach move a bit so they can digest a bit more. My kids have always argued that they have a second stomach for dessert. So I love the idea that there actually is a scientific uh, second stomach 
for dessert. It's being done live on Japanese TV. And what most people find is if you savor a little bit of chocolate, it does sate and it does fill you up very nicely. And that, that to me is one of the strong health arguments for chocolate, which is it's much better to have that than it is to go and scoff some sort of, you know, like low fat vanilla yogurt, which has actually got seven times the amount of sugar in it that a chocolate bar will have. I have to let Tim say it. He's looking slightly skeptical in the second stomach. So I, I definitely want him to have a chance to. Uh... Oh, I'm a big believer in, in the Mr. Creosote effect. I think it was the wafer thin mint at the end of the big meal that uh, doesn't always work. But no, I think variety is the thing that produces increased appetite. And so that's where humans are always looking to uh, get variety into our, yeah. our taste buds. So. That, that's really interesting. Sort of talking about sort of personalized responses, you talked a lot about the way that you're getting over 70%, you're starting to get, you know, all these uh, polyphenols and everything that really supports your microbes. I think this is one of these things, we also saw a lot of variety in response when we were doing the, the sort of Zoe predict studies, right, Tim, and we see this also in our own personal scores. I managed to just squeak 50 out of 100 for, for dark chocolate, which is great news because 50 and above means I'm allowed to eat regularly, uh, whereas my score for milk chocolate is only 34. So significantly lower. And this is one of those things that made me think, oh, okay, so dark chocolate is almost the only sort of bad thing that I'm still allowed to do. Tim, how did you turn out? Disappointingly worse than you, Jonathan. So I only scored 44 on uh, dark chocolate and 22 on uh, milk chocolate. So I have to be really careful. It really means that milk chocolate, which I've more virtually given it up, tastings with Spencer, go for dark chocolate. And I, that score was for an average between uh, 70 and 85%, I reckon. If I go more towards the 80%, I can get my score up a little bit and have more of it. No, no, that, that makes sense. And there's lots of people with much higher scores for the dark chocolate as well. I think both of us have quite poor blood sugar control, right? And so this is one of the big challenges with chocolate is the sugar that's mixed in with it, as well as also if you have, you know, there's quite a lot of fat. So if you have more issues with fat control, so that we see very wide variety in response, but I think in all cases, the dark chocolate being a lot better than the milk for the reasons, Tim, that you were explaining. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm at the, the worst end of the spectrum. So I think most people will be doing probably better than both of us, Jonathan, I think. so. <laughs> well, but your microbes always save, always save you, Tim, which is... Uh, your microbes what, save me. Yeah. Your microbes save you as, as, as always. I think, you know, we're starting to touch a lot on chocolate. I know Spencer is keen to talk more about what's going on. Uh, I thought it might be fun actually to start with the end product of chocolate before all the boring technical stuff about how it, how it happens. And since we're lucky enough to, to have Spencer here, uh, he could actually tell us how to taste chocolate. And so I thought that this was how great was it that I had a job where I actually had an excuse to eat chocolate in the middle of the day. So I actually brought some chocolate. And of course, I brought some chocolate from Spencer because... Spencer's the man who got me addicted to, to chocolate over the last decade. For those of you who don't know Spencer, he's sort of like a chocolate pusher. So whenever you meet him, he takes out of his rucksack uh, like a bar of chocolate and presses it on you. And you think it's just he's really generous. But what you realize is it's just gateway drug. It's sort of like a drug dealer you know, starting you off. And you're like, oh, I don't even know if I like it this much. We tried a bit. Oh, it's okay. And then after, uh, after a few months, you start to be like, you know what? I really start to like this. Uh, and then you're addicted. So um, you have to be careful if, if Spencer offers you chocolate. Talk us through. I've got some here. Tim and Spencer, do you, ha do you have some chocolate that you can, uh, yep. we yep. can maybe taste together? Yeah, we've definitely got some. We can all sort of do it in a slightly different way. So the one thing I would just sort of pick up on this, I don't believe technically you can get addicted to chocolate. I think you're addicted to the additives inside it. And we've done quite a, there's been quite a lot of work done on that. 
anyway, here's how you should taste chocolate if you want to. Um, this this is it. this is what this is what my drug pusher says to me as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get the pure stuff, you'll be all right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for two sacks. So, for example, you do get addicted to caffeine. If you have like four large cups of coffee a day for four weeks, at the end of that, you will get the jitters when you come off it. Similarly, you do get addicted to sugar. You definitely get addicted to all sorts of different, you know, class substances. With chocolate, you would actually have to eat the equivalent of about a kilogram of chocolate a day for 10 weeks to get any sort of the um, withdrawal effects from theobromine. So it's technically phenomenally hot. You can definitely get addicted to the sugar in chocolate, but theobromine, which is the active ingredient inside chocolate, is not, as far as anybody's ever shown, addictive. So it's not the chocolate which is addictive. It may be the sensations to it, which it arises, which is great pleasure and you know great flavors and other stuff, but not that. But anyway, let's get back to tasting chocolate. Got it. So I'm not truly addicted. I just like it so much that I need to keep eating it. Yeah, it's not like alcohol. It's not like alcohol. So take a piece of chocolate, uh, and do look at it. The most important thing to do with a piece of chocolate though before you eat it is to actually snap it. So if you snap a piece of chocolate. I'm gonna snap this in front of the microphone so you can hope you hear that. Okay, that was a pretty good snap. So that snap is really, really important because what it actually says is that the chocolate's been properly tempered and it's gonna melt in your mouth and release all those aromas and volatiles and flavors. And if you want to sort of practice at this, a good trick is actually to hold your nose before you grab a piece of chocolate, take a piece of chocolate and stick it on your tongue. And this is what we make everybody do when they come to one of our chocolate tastings, because it's a very good way of actually explaining the unique aspect of being human and actually being able to understand the difference between retronasal and olfonasal flavors and olfaction. But if you take a piece of chocolate, you put it on your mouth, you can chew it a bit, you could do whatever you want with it. And what you will discover is that you don't get many sensations from it. You may get a little bit of taste, you may get a little bit of sweetness, you may get a little bit of sadness, etc. But by the time it's melted, what should happen when you release your nose, is it melting for you all yet? Is that suddenly, when you breathe that through your mouth, having got a piece of chocolate in it, what should suddenly happen is you should be accosted by a whole wave of aromas and flavours. And what that's showing is that the amazing thing about chocolate is that when you put it in your mouth, it melts. That's because it's been properly tempered, which goes back to the snap idea. Um, and it's literally the only substance that we have, which when we put it in our mouths, melts. I know you can say that ice cream does, but it actually melts before you get it in your mouth. So chocolate has this extraordinary ability, thanks to cocoa butter, to when it's tempered to crystal structure five, to melt. And that releases all the flavor volatiles. And because human beings can detect flavor, not just through our noses, but also through our mouths because of retronasal olfaction, chocolate is an amazing way of describing that. Well, so for people who, who aren't, not everybody listening, obviously is able to have the chocolate at the same time. The first thing I can tell you is eating chocolate while holding your nose is very disappointing, right, Tim? There was <laughs> really no pleasure from that experience, agreed? No, it's a waste of time, yeah. And the second thing is very nice when you stop holding your nose um, in general, and even better because then suddenly you've got melted chocolate in your mouth that you can start to taste. Yeah, and it would have, at that stage, it would have melted in your mouth, so it would be releasing the volatiles. And actually, that is back to it, back to Tim's point about looking at the list. Sugar, salt, and fat. Sugar, you know, the sort of stuff that's in, you know, dairy milk or in a Bourneville or any of those other bars. Sugar basically will hit your nervous system within six tenths of a second. So you will get the hit from those very quickly. Whereas with chocolate, good chocolate bars, it will take a lot longer, five to 10 to 15 seconds. So you need to train yourself to savor. Um, so that, that's sort of, you know, the first bit you should have a bit of fun with with chocolate. 
And then the second bit of advice is always have a couple of different chocolates on the go at any one time. Because the amazing thing about chocolate is that they good craft chocolate, artisan chocolate, they will all taste and have completely different flavors because it has more variety. It's, it, it's, like, you know, it, it's what we'd all love to do with wine, which is have a couple of glasses of wine on the go at the same time. But it's difficult. With chocolate, it's actually very easy. You can just crack open a couple of bars, share them with friends, and then you can get into all those different flavors. Fantastic. Well, I definitely enjoyed the taste of that chocolate. Tim, is what we're smelling also linked to what's going to go on when it hits the gut and all those bacteria get all the good stuff? Or are these two sort of completely separate things? Separate but related. Obviously, the greater the complexity of the smells gives you a hint as to all the different chemicals that you're getting. And I think the, the better the chocolate is made, just like any food, you'll get this complexity of smells rather than just one strong flavour, which is often artificial. You're getting this complex, a bit like a, a fine wine that you, is developing on the palate. And that tells you that you're likely to be getting lots of good chemicals that will also reach your gut microbes. So I think that's they're broadly related. And so it's a pretty good test of quality. And humans have evolved to have, actually have pretty good palates if we take the time to use them. Yeah. And I, I think actually that, that point about sniffing a chocolate bar is actually a very important one because the way that most mass-produced chocolate is made is such that it is using tastes rather than flavours and you can't smell a taste. So, you know, sweetness, sugar actually doesn't have a smell. And what you're actually going to get when you get a good dark chocolate or a good even good milk chocolate is you're going to get lots of different aromas. And interestingly, chocolate unlike, for example, coffee, um, actually retronasally and orthonasally, you will tend to like the smell and like the flavour at the same time, which isn't always the same thing with coffee. Lots of people like the smell of coffee but can't necessarily eat it. But the other thing I would sort of say is that in craft chocolate, in artisan chocolate, the way the sugar is used is very different. So in a sort of cheap chocolate bar, you're actually using the sugar as the, the main delight, the main thing which is going to get you going. Whereas, as Tim points out, in craft chocolate, what's actually happening is that it's the different polyphenols, it's the different pyrosomes, it's all the different aromas which cocoa has within it after it's been fermented and dried and roasted, which actually give it all the fun. And what you use sugar for is a little bit like you'd use salt on meat. You can actually use sugar to bring out those flavours. So if you actually get somebody to compare the same chocolate but with slightly different amounts of sugar, they will have completely different flavour profiles because it's just bringing them out in a different way. But if you're using you know, a, a chocolate where the primary ingredient is sugar, all you're really going to get is the sugar. And let's get a little geeky for a minute because it's fun. But Spencer, you can't spend an hour on this. Tell us a bit about like how this works. So we were talking before, I think, uh, about this idea that maybe 70% plus actual cocoa is a sign that this is probably a, a good dark chocolate. It's going to start to give you all this positive complexity that supports your, your microbiome. That's fantastic. But we've also said, hey, actually, there's difference that all of this is processed, but there's somehow a difference between what's going to allow this to still be a, a product that, that has got some health benefits to sort of perhaps balance out some of some of this, this sugar and everything else, but it sort of depends. So talk us through a bit, like, how do you go from this plant in the jungle, right, somewhere to something that is, you know, in all cases, a bar that really doesn't look very much like a plant at all, and um, help us understand a bit about what's going on there, and therefore how we can figure out not only by buying a product from you clearly, but let's say you go to the grocery store, we've got to be practical. What helps us to identify the sort of stuff that actually, you know, day to day we could be eating. It is a, um, it's a nice treat. I'm 
even if you say I'm not addicted, I'm addicted. What's going on and, and how can we, we sort of recognize something that we should feel good about eating? So I think let's start with the last point, which is how do you identify something good? There, there are basically three things you should look at whenever you buy a chocolate bar. The first thing is the ingredients. And the first ingredient should not be sugar. It should be chocolate. Um, whether that's a milk chocolate or whether that's a dark chocolate, even a white chocolate. When we sell white chocolates, the first ingredient is always going to be cocoa or cocoa butter. Uh, the second, and, and you don't want to have a bunch of additives and stuff that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. And we'll come back onto that in a sec. The second thing you'd really like to know is actually where do the beans come from? Because that's quite important because it has all sorts of flavor um, implications as well as also having all sorts of socioeconomic implications, which we maybe can touch on in a sec. And then finally, you want to know where it's made because as I said, most chocolate is actually made rather like chicken nuggets, not made uh, like, you know, the way that you'd sort of make a roast chicken. And this sort of, I think, so you want to know literally where is it being made? So, you know, the bar that you have in front of you, Jonathan, you know, the beans there come from a small bit of Colombia called Arauco, and they are sailed over on a ship, as you delight it to, to Mike Longman at Chocolada down in Cornwall. But, but what they're trying to do is bring out the flavour of the chocolate. And I think, you know, I think you've covered in other aspects of the podcast, what is ultra processed food and how does that work? And in a way, what you want to try and do is get to what we call craft chocolate, which is not ultra processed. And every step of the way, those, you know, craft chocolate is different to mass produced ultra processed chocolate. So the very first step, as Tim sort of said, is, you know, remember chocolate is a fruit, you know, it does grow on trees, it looks a bit strange. So for those of you who can't see it at home, I'm holding up something which looks like a small rugby football. Um, and it's got lots of different colours on it. And they are wonderful colours. And when you open it up, it tends to look uh, rather like something like an alien. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Tim, obviously, well, because where he's been in Costa Rica, but you have these sort of rather sort of strange white seeds covered in a pulp. And as Tim said at the beginning, the magic of and, chocolate and, is this. And, and those just described, and they're like about an inch long, three centimetres, is that about the... Yeah, they're about an inch long, maybe a little bit less. You have about 25 to 50 of them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a pod, which is about enough to make one chocolate bar. And as an aside, you actually need one and a half thousand to 2,000 litres of water to grow one of these pods. So you need a lot of it, which is why chocolate, if it involves deforestation, is so disastrous. But these seeds are incredibly bitter. If you put one of these in your mouth and you try and eat it, it is incredibly bitter and astringent. And Tim, that is your polyphenols that you're talking about, isn't it, that you were talking about earlier, I guess? The chemicals that give you that astringency, that, you know, set that uh, really quite bitter, very bitter taste, it are all these defence chemicals, which are good for the plant and if you use them right good for us as well but they are defense chemicals stop other insects eating them and other plants eating them directly yeah and it's the magic of fermentation which turns these incredibly bitter and astringent seeds into cocoa beans because what happens is all the way through so the first thing that happens that is fermentation and that's a you know a yeast-based reaction with the sugars in the uh, pulp reacting to create a fermentation but all the way through whether you're fermenting whether you're drying those are the first few tests that you have on the farm and what's actually happening is is that you're creating heat and what heat does is it basically breaks down the pyrosomes and the polyphenols in the chocolate to start releasing aromas which we can then detect later in the process so after the chocolate the cocoa seed has been fermented and then dried it will then generally get sorted and most of the time it will then get sent to a factory and this is where the first big differences start to occur because for mass-produced chocolate, you don't really care about the fermentation or about the drying 
uh, because you're going to add flavor in later. But for craft chocolate, artisan chocolate, you can create all sorts of different flavors, just as you can with wine. You know, the different fermentations you're going to have will make a huge difference, as does the drying. And then when it gets to the factory, you have to make a decision. Now, the first decision is, are you going to go for efficiency? And if you go for efficiency, you take the skins off the nibs of the beans off and then roast it because it's a bit more efficient but if you do that you lose the ability to control much of the flavor so that's not what craft chocolate does so what craft chocolate will do is it'll roast the beans for about 30 20 to 30 minutes and that again the heat to gain mild reactions it'll bring out more flavors then what you'll do is you'll take the shell off you'll do what's called winnowing and conching which is to grind it into a paste into a smooth paste Tim actually has, he's trying actually what we call a stone ground chocolate, which hasn't been conched. But again, it's heat which is being applied at this point, and then you'll temper it, and then you'll turn it into a bar. Now, with mass processed chocolate, they'll use a whole bunch of other technologies which you wouldn't be able to do at home. Again, it's like ultra-processed food. Like They'll hydrolyze it. They will add a lot of other stuff to it that you wouldn't really want. They'll often actually not add cocoa butter, but what they'll do is they'll add vegetable fats and palm oils and stuff like PGPRs. And then we can also talk a little bit about, you know, lesser thins and other glues, which are definitely problematic. But in the end, what you'll have, if you have a good artisan chocolate or, a you know, a reasonable chocolate, you will have hopefully some of the flavor of cacao coming through, which is the great fun part to it. If you don't, it'll still be a pleasant experience. But what you'll basically be doing is using the chocolate, its mouthfeel and its ability to basically be a great vector for other flavors. And it won't necessarily be that great for you. We couldn't cover this conversation without talking about the sugar, right? So most of us are not going to be eating 100% chocolate bar. There is sugar being added. You've talked about that already, uh, Spencer, about the balance. Like, how bad is that? It's got sugar added to it. So this is like a terrible thing. Like, how do we think about that? So I think that that's a slight red herring and a bit misleading um, because the amount of sugar in a 60 or 70 gram bar of chocolate, which is 70 or 80%, is one or two teaspoons. And you're never going to eat a full chocolate bar in one sitting. Or, if, you know, I, I would suggest that you don't. You don't need to if you savour it and you appreciate the flavour. I can manage it, but all right. <laughs> but I, I don't know if you'd eat a full chocolate bar. Very few people will actually take a, a good quality artisan chocolate bar and actually scoff it in one go, unless they're incredibly hungry, in which case it's probably not the ideal thing, because it's something which you want to savour. It's a bit like you know, for most people, you don't really drink a whole bottle of wine in one go. And actually, let's compare it to an American red wine. A lot of American red wines, um, you know, the high alcohol ones, will actually have more sugar than, in them than a bar of chocolate. Certainly a low-fat yogurt, a low-fat vanilla yogurt, has got like five or six times the amount of sugar that a dark chocolate bar will have. And, and, and particularly you're talking about a dark chocolate here, right? Because again, just to remind well, no, everybody, I, so we, actually, we do some, some chocolate falls, right? They tend to see higher sugar levels. Yes, but there is a sort of slight twist on this, which is that when you talk about milk chocolate and dark milk chocolates, if they're good quality, we sell a lot of milk chocolate bars, but almost all of our milk chocolate bars are over 40% cacao. And once you start getting above 55, 60%, actually they have less added sugar to them than a dark chocolate bar of 70 or 80%, because actually the milk is being caramelized and becoming a sweetener. We actually do some chocolate bars, which are milk chocolate bars, but have no added sugar. So that, you know, 65 or 70 or even 80% cacao and the sweetener is milk. Now, obviously, as you caramelize the milk, it does become a sugar. But I'm just sort of encouraging you to think slightly differently about sugar. What's really dangerous is if the chocolate doesn't have any flavor naturally. And, that, and that's, I think, what Tim was sort of saying. So that's, that is the important thing about, you know, the, the great 
thing about food is if it has flavor then it's in more much more likely to be natural and chocolate is an absolute perfect example of that the more flavor the chocolate naturally has the less processing that it's going to have had and less sort of you know ultra processing that it will have had with it but but i wouldn't worry too much about dark milk chocolates and good craft milk chocolates the only danger i think is that you tend to scoff more of them than a dark chocolate bar i think that's where it becomes trickier that, that a milk chocolate bar is much closer to a bliss point food than a dark chocolate bar and again bliss point is what you described earlier on when you combine sugar salt and fat human beings just don't know how to stop eating brilliant so we actually asked our zoe members on uh, instagram we said we were going to be doing this really fun podcast talking about chocolate and what were their key questions. And a number of them we've already covered, but there are a number here that we haven't. And so I, I want to make sure that we've covered those. One question was, is fruit and nut milk chocolate healthier than dark chocolate? Tim, I can see you. <laughs> you've been thinking about this. What's the answer? Well, it's always going to depend on which we're comparing. But on average, it would be less healthy than dark chocolate just because the way they're made and generally fruit and nut chocolates tend to be made with uh, very commercial milk chocolates of low, you know, uh, cocoa quality and amount. So you're mainly having sugar and dry fruits are a very high source of sugar as well. So probably the only good bits you're getting there are uh, a few nuts in in that one. So although I, you know, used to love, um, as uh, that was my favorite as a kid, I think fruit and nut uh, chocolate. I, I, I now realize it's uh, not a, it's definitely not a health food. So I'm afraid fruit and nut milk chocolate is out, it sounds like. So next question, how much chocolate do you need for it to be beneficial? So I love this question where the question is really, am I eating enough chocolate in order to get the benefits, which is a wonderful way to think about this. So I think there's sort of a couple of different ways of answering this. I think if you eat enough to stop you having a third slice of chocolate cake or, you know, a fifth piece of, you know, sort of Black Forest Gatto, then th that, that's a good thing. I mean, I think what, what, what I think chocolate is, is it's a great way of satisfying your cravings for sweetness at the end of a meal without having too much of it. On the other end of it, there is, as Tim was sort of saying, uh, there is some evidence actually that, that the polyphenols in chocolate actually can be very very beneficial for your heart. And there is this tribe of people in, in South America called the Yuna. And you know, the fact that they never have heart attacks is put down to the fact that they drink about 15 to 17 cups of chocolate every day. So, so you know, if, if that's what you're after, you've got to consume an awful lot of it. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that most of us would be up for being able to sort of do that. It's sort of like, you know, the, the way they drink it is definitely slightly differently to the way that we would consume it. So I'd say quality, not quantity, is what people should yeah. be aiming at. 20 to 25 grams a day, which is, you know, quarter of a bar, which is what you'll get, actually, when you come to one of our tastings. That's what people will eat. They, they are amazed. They're absolutely full by the end of it, but they've literally had less than a you know quarter of a bar of chocolate. But they'll have had 10 different chocolates and about that amount. Brilliant. So next, next question, should I watch out for lecithins in chocolate? Lecithin is, is an emulsifier, which is the glue-like substances that bind things together. So it's an indicator that the, whoever's making that chocolate is, is trying to cut some corners and, uh, and stick some of these things together. The, uh, there are many emulsifiers used in, um, in food processing, and probably lecithin is one of the healthier ones of those because it is a natural product. But it generally is a sign that someone is cutting corners with the process. And so um, 
and there's a question mark about whether, whether lecithin itself uh, may be harmful for your gut microbes. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably not terrible, but it's also a sign that uh, uh, you could do better. In chocolate, there are generally two lecithins. Well, there's three lecithins which are used, one of which I'm going to ignore immediately, which is PGPR, because it's used as an alternative to vegetable fat and palm oil, and that is just really, really bad. That's just not a good thing. Um, the other two are sunflower lecithin and soya lecithin. Of the two, always look for sunflower. And as Tim said, the reason why lecithins are added to chocolate is because actually it helps people who are cooking with chocolate if they're trying to make, you know, some sort of great chocolate pudding where they want to glaze, it makes it much easier to deal with. But also because in hot countries, which rarely make chocolate, so most of the time actually where chocolate is grown is not where it's made. Um, but in those few cases like Madagascar with someone like Menacao, the machinery gums up if you don't add a bit of less of into it. So, you know, for them, it's the exception that proves the rule. But, but generally, be really dubious about ingredients. I mean, I would be much more worried about um, vanilla or vanillin especially in dark chocolates, uh, that I would be about lesser things. But if you can, yeah, I mean, you know, less is more. Brilliant. And last question, is eating half a bar of chocolate just before bed a bad idea? This is an interesting one, because actually one of the interesting things about drinking chocolate is that people have always often had it before bed, because it does, it has this, it, it does help people sleep, hot drink before you'll go to sleep. And although chocolate does have trace elements of caffeine, its main active ingredient is theobromine, which has this sort of weird effect of, on the one hand, stimulating you, but not sort of waking you up. Um, I think, though, the argument about like having, uh, you know, half a bar of dark chocolate, again, is going to be, you know, what sort of dark chocolate is it? If it's a dark chocolate bar, which is like, you know, 60% sugar, then be a bit worried about it, because sugar is going to keep you up. Um, I, I'm not necessarily thinking that half a bar is necessarily good, a couple of squares, will definitely, you know, cause your second stomach to regurgitate in a very good way. So that may help you sleep. Um, but but I, I, you know, I'm not sure that eating before you go to sleep is overall a great thing. But Tim, you're the expert on this. Yeah, in general, uh, I think you should be having your, your chocolate not just before you go to sleep. Have it just after your meal or just before a meal. Um, and you want to keep up. There's a general idea that we want to Put our eating times together and we have to, a long time to for our gut to recover. So uh, I'm against uh, late night snacking or early morning snacking. Give your gut a rest and uh, let it enjoy the chocolate uh, uh, in its eating time and, and not confuse it. Brilliant. I think that's a perfect place to stop. This has been so much fun. I think we could keep talking about chocolate for hours, uh, but we will, we will stop. Thank you both Tim and Spencer for joining me on the Zoe Science Podcast today. Uh, we hope you liked today's episode. Uh, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe if you did. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about Zoe and the best foods for your body beyond chocolate, uh, you can head to joinzoe.com slash podcast and get 10% off your personalized nutrition program. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Wolf. The Zoe Science Podcast is produced by Rob Heath with support from Sharon Feder and Kirsten Cade here at Zoe. See you next time. <laughs>